We're reading from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Skipping down to verse 18. It reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground... The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Amen, Adam. Amen. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. All glory and honor and praise belong to you, O Lord. Thank you for waking us today with the sound of rain and bringing us here to worship you. Lord, among us there are countless needs. All of them remind us that without you, we are hopeless. Without your faithful provision, we are empty and helpless. Lord, some of us are facing health challenges. We need you as our great physician to bring healing, to bring strength. Or some of us are dealing with internal, even emotional despair. It may be the result of obvious trauma in our lives, or it may have no tangible cause. 
We pray that you might give peace and comfort and reassurance that you are near and that you help. Lord, enable us to have our faith increased and to be fruitful for you. Some of us are struggling with Christ's gospel claims on our heart. We're reluctant to surrender our sin or we're unsure about trusting Christ. I pray that you might make the gospel clear. May your spirit shatter our resistance. Fill our hearts with redeeming faith today that unites us to you. Father, we pray today for those who have been sent out to do missions, particularly those from our own congregation, for the D family serving you in Europe, for the S family in Central Asia, for the F family preparing to deploy to Africa. We pray that you would guard and strengthen their hearts and their hands for the work that you've set before them. Lord, I'm grateful, as Tommy has already mentioned to you, for every member of this fellowship. What a joy to pastor these people, to shepherd their hearts. Even though I'm a deeply flawed and weak vessel, it is by your grace and according to your spirit that you allow me to serve. Lord, I'm grateful for the staff that you have assembled here. What a blessing to come alongside Nathan and Dan and Bobby and Margaret and Jenny. You've gifted each of them in wonderful ways to equip this body. And I pray that you would guard their lives and keep them close to you and that you would bless them as they serve you. Sovereign God, give us all unity in Christ. I pray that your love will abound in us for you and for one another. Now, Lord, we ask that you would prepare our ears and our hearts to receive your word, that you would give guidance and direction for our living, for our serving. Let nothing stand in our way. Make the gospel flourish in this church and this community. Make us thrive for your glory in every way you choose fit to use us. Lord, we thank you for your provision that blesses our lives, that takes away those worries that we have and concerns for lack. We thank you for the privilege that we have to give back to your work. And so we ask today that you would receive our worship as we have read your word, as we have sung your word, as we pray your word, as we preach your word, and as we give according to your word, that you would be exalted and that you would display your glory for all to see. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Teaching and studying Genesis 1 through 11 is no easy feat, as I'm sure you're figuring out and familiar with. It's filled with unlimited topics and subjects that we could explore and pursue. We aspire to be faithful stewards of God's Word, as well as our time together in God's Word. That means we will not attempt to pursue every line of thought. And while these chapters are especially challenging, we find here that there's, this is a ground, a battleground of sorts, where worldviews collide. 
Much of what we know and think and assumed is shaped by human speculation. For instance, Darwin's evolutionary theory has greatly affected modern worldviews. It has become a foil to God and to God as Creator. Many who reject God find a home in evolutionary theory. I once visited Westminster Abbey in London, and I was surprised to discover that Charles Darwin is buried there in the Abbey. He actually trained to be a clergyman in the Anglican Church, but later abandoned that pursuit, embraced unbelief. Note his words from his own autobiography. He said, disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, but was at last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress and have never since doubted even for a single second that my conclusion was correct. I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my friends, will be forever, everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. Close quote. In Exodus 17:14 and Deuteronomy 31:9 and 24, we find that Moses is called the author, the writer of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses. God had instructed Moses to begin as he's sharing God's word with us, providing revelation from God. He begins with beginnings. He begins with origins. Now, we can argue about a lot of things. We can argue about the age of the planets. We can age, uh, argue about the age of stars and even mankind. But one thing we can't argue with, and that which Moses makes abundantly clear, and which is his primary point, I think, in these early texts of Genesis, is that God did it all. That there's no random there's no chaos, there's no lack of intentionality here that God did it, and God did it with purpose and planning in all His wisdom and perfection. This is God's story, it's God's work, and this book is His revelation. He tells us in this book how He made everything. He tells us in this book how He assigned oversight and stewardship to mankind, he tells us in this book how man plunged it into a state of brokenness and sin through disobedience. And he tells us how God is not surprised by this, not devastated by this, and not reduced to a reactive position in all of this, but that he planned for it and is working through it to restore and perfect his perfect will. This is the guiding star as we read, study, and understand this book. Last week, we examined the first five days of God's creating work, and today we focus in on day six. Day six, where God creates man and woman and indeed crowns creation. So we're going to talk about three things this morning. We're going to talk about God creating man, God creating woman, and then the charge the commission that he gives to the two of them. So let's begin. God creates man. 
Kenneth Matthews writes in his commentary on Genesis this. He said, the crown of God's handiwork is human life. The crown of God's handiwork is human life. The creation account supports man's prominence in creation in a number of ways. For instance, it reveals an ascending order of significance that climaxes with human life. Of God's creative acts, this is the only one in which we see God deliberate before creating. The others use impersonal expressions like let there be light, let there be stars, let there be land divided with water. But this one says, let us make man. Let us make in our own image this creature. Only human life is created in the image of God. Only human life is assigned the role of ruling over all of creation. The word for create used here in verse 27 is used three times as if God is giving us, he's emphasizing very clearly what he's doing here and that this all happened with his spoken word from his hand. No other explanation is needed. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, there's lots of ways that we can probably debate, argue, think about this. Al Mohler describes it this way. He says, the use of the plural to describe God, this pronoun our, is probably a reference to the Trinity. There may be some other explanations, but this is the most likely one. God creates both man and woman in His image. There's no hint of inequality here between males and females. The words image and likeness connote both a unique relation to God, humanity is like Him, and a unique relation to the rest of creation. Humanity is to rule over creation as God's vice regent. James Montgomery Boyce connects humans to God's image in three ways. He says that men and women possess attributes of personality, as God himself does. Animals don't. Plants don't. Inanimate matter does not. Now, I know some of you are going to argue about animals. You think that your pet has personality. But maybe, but most of that is instinctive reaction to stimuli that you've provided and trained them to have. What it means to have this personality, it means to have knowledge, to have feelings, including religious feelings, and a will, and a will. Secondly, Montgomery Boyce says men and women are moral creatures. We have built within us in the fabric of our DNA this idea of something being right and wrong. It's not embedded in animals, but it is embedded in humanity. And thirdly, he says, men and women are spiritual creatures. We are made for communion with God himself. Lest I remind you of what Jesus told the woman who approached him about worship in John chapter 4. And he said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. 
Humans are made in the image, the likeness of God. Now, this is where we find our value. This is where we find our worth. Not in the things we do, not in the careers that we hold, but in the fact that we're created in the image of God. This is where we find our value. You know, parents and grandparents, we, I hear these discussions all the time, especially as a newborn comes into the world. Don't you hear these discussions? People say, oh, he looks like Uncle Jim or great-great-grandfather Bob. We recognize likeness in our children. He's a chip off the old block, or he's the spitting image of so-and-so. So we're familiar with this idea, even though it changes from year to year as they grow and mature. Before the fall, man and woman were created in the image, in the likeness of God. So if you were to look, if we could go back to the beginning and see Adam and Eve before the fall, we would clearly recognize the likeness of God in everything about them. There would be God's glory about them in a way that we can't even imagine today. After the fall, the image has been marred by sin. You know, in the ancient Near East, royal persons were considered sons or representatives of the gods. But mankind has been appointed as God's royal representatives to rule over this earth. Sin marks the human family, as rebellious and disobedient children. The image has not been lost, but the glory has greatly faded through sin. Kevin DeYoung says, We are the statues or icons placed in creation to testify to the world that God has dominion over this place. God has created a beautiful world, but in His wisdom, He deemed it was necessary even a requirement that someone steward or oversee what God had created. And that is the reason He made man. He made him to be His image bearer, to live here, and to tend the creation. Now, creation is God's temple. We begin in a temple, and we'll conclude in a temple. At the end of Revelation, the Scripture says. But in the meantime, man is to fill the creation... He is to tame it, he is to cultivate it, he is to harvest it, he is to govern it, all for the glory of God. Now just think about that. Think about the the general idea among humanity and how we approach and view life in this world. When's the last time you heard someone describe their life in those kind of terms? Probably never, right? But man has been created by God in his image to do just that. But he didn't stop there with just creating a man. He says he created a woman as well. Now, some claim that Genesis 2 is a parable or an allegory. They see contradiction between Genesis 1 and chapter 2. The problem is that in Genesis 1, we see the creation of man and woman kind of joined together as if it happened simultaneously. And in Genesis 2, we see clearly that man was created first, and then woman was subsequently created later. So did God create Adam first and Eve later, or at the same time? That's the question. 
Genesis 1 is God's general purpose. It's important for us to understand this. Genesis 2 zooms in with more detail about what has already happened or what God says is going to happen. Genesis 1 says God made man and woman together, or it implies that. Genesis 2 says God made man, then he made woman. But Jesus quoted Genesis chapter 2 in Matthew's gospel. He says in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Paul affirmed that Adam was created first and then Eve. 1 Timothy 2.13, he says very plainly, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. If Genesis 2 is an allegory or a parable, Jesus and Paul's arguments simply unravel. They don't hold together. But he says, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, God said, it's not good that man should be alone. God has continually stated that creation was good. This is the first time that he's stated something that could be less than good or not good. Why is it not good? Well, even before the fall, even in this paradise, there was one thing which, if left undone, would have not been good. That is leaving man alone. We do not know that Adam was lonely or that he felt isolated in any way. The text does not suggest this. It does not suggest that there's a psychologized solution or answer to this problem. The problem with Adam's aloneness was something else altogether. There is no record of Adam complaining to God that he's alone or feels lonely. Rather, it was God who stated that it was not good for him to be alone. Every other part of creation has an appropriate counterpart. And God brings all the animals before Adam as part of his stewardship over creation and has him name them. You're going to be responsible for them. You're going to have dominion over them. So name them. And at the conclusion of that... As he brought them before Adam, it says, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. No appropriate counterpart. Some will assume this suggests an inferior role or purpose for women, that they're just helpers. But that's that's not what's implied here. There's no such connotation associated with this idea. Woman is not intended to be lesser of a person or lesser in value or in ability. She is created as an indispensable partner to complete God's purpose with man. The woman helps the man achieve the blessing he could not achieve alone. And neither could she accomplish it alone. They complete one another. And this idea of help has dignity associated with it. God describes himself on numerous occasions as being a helper to his people. It's not an inferior intent. DeYoung says it this way. As image bearers, not to mention co-heirs of the grace of life, men and women possess equal worth and dignity. 
Eve was not a lesser creature. She was not an inferior being. Although God has revealed himself in masculine language, for example, father, king, husband, he is neither male nor female. To be faithful to God's revelation, we should speak of God only in the masculine terms he has given us. But to call God father is not the same as saying God is a man. Though he became a man in the incarnation, maleness, therefore, is not a higher order of being than femaleness. Both men and women are made to represent God in the world. Woman is the first of creation to come from a living being. If anything, she might be elevated. God made everything else from the dirt of the ground, right? But he took woman from Adam, from the flesh that had already been created. Why did he do this? She is equal, therefore, in substance. So no one could ever say that the woman is inferior or less than because she has been literally taken out of the same substance that made Adam, Adam. She's not one of the animals or part of creation to be ruled over, but one flesh, one flesh to be loved and protected and led. She is a complement to man, completing him and he her. They are alike and yet distinct with complementary roles. Now, I know this is very unpopular in the world in which we live today. We are trying to rewrite the rules. We're trying to make up our own rules. We're trying to say we don't like the way God's done things, that there's something wrong with the way God's done things, and that we have a better solution, a better system. But God's system was perfect, perfect in every way. Together, man and woman will succeed in God's assignment. The fact that she is formed from his rib demonstrates that they are a perfect fit for one another. As companions, both sexually and socially, is more about their loving unity than their domestic equality. They are the same human stuff. The right stuff as God has made it and fashioned it. So God makes man. He makes woman. He makes them to be together, not the same, not identical, but of the same stuff, but distinct that they might complement one another and complete one another and need one another. And then he charges them, says that God blessed them. Three blessings are announced in this creation account. First, God blessed the fish and the fowl of the air in verse 22 of chapter 1. Then here in chapter 2, verse 3, he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And in verse 28 of chapter 1, he blessed the man and woman that he had made. A blessing indicates being in a favored position. Being put in a prime spot, a favored position before the Lord. It precedes his instruction to be fruitful and multiply. They will be able to do this, carry out his assignment, because they're in this favored position before God. It is God, clearly again, who is saying, this is all by my doing. It's not random. It's not by chance. The same God who says that each and every one of us is carefully and wonderfully made. That he knew you before the foundation of the world. 
There's no room for randomness or chaos in God's plan. None. And they will be able to carry this all out because God equips and enables them to do so. It is He who provides them with offspring. Fill the earth, He says. Bring forth more image bearers to inhabit the world that I've made. More representatives to do the bidding of God and govern the world. It's a positive thing to be in a position of complete subjection to God. We will see this in the coming weeks as Adam and Eve fail to do this and bring sin into the world. Their disobedience will plunge all of creation into destruction. Adam's responsibility in this creation temple is to be God's priest, to do God's bidding, to point all of creation to God in a position of worship and adoration and honor, to tend and care for the garden as an honor, as worship, as glory for God. And they were given dominion over everything, the fish, the birds, everything that lives and moves and has life. And God supplied them with everything necessary. He says, no worries. I'm providing all the food you'll need for all of humanity that you're going to fill the earth with. And I'll provide all the food for all the living creatures on the face of the earth. I'll do it all. Just do things as I ask and instruct. And he says, it was very good. It was very good. The design was intentional, the design was specific, the formation was perfect. Perfect order and coordination, sufficient supplies to support God's project. Not chaotic, not violent, not unruly, not uncertain or dreadful. It was very good. Now, what a difference. What a difference compared to the world we live in today. Isn't it? Everywhere we look, we see unruliness, we see lawlessness, we see selfishness, we see bigotry, we see hatred, we see murder, inexplicably, occurring all the time. Man is not filling creation with life and with blessing and with the imago Dei. He is filling it with his own greed and selfishness. This is the legacy of something like evolutionary theory. Rather, man is filling creation with hostility, perversion, idolatry, and greater darkness. But I've got good news. The Scripture gives us good news. Jesus' first advent changed everything. Even while we continue to live in a world that shows the effects of sin and brokenness, and we can't understand how it can continue to exist as it is, even while this is going on, the change has already occurred. Christ has redeemed creation. While Adam failed and set us on this broken course, Jesus settled the account with God for our transgressions and rebellion. His precious blood paid for our sin. His resurrection assured that we can be justified before God Humans can exit the fallen race of Adam and enter the justified race of Jesus Christ. Any man or woman 
who believes the gospel and repents of sin and commits to follow Christ will be given forgiveness and a gift of eternal life in a new creation, a renewed creation, a restored creation. And just like he will make followers new again, he's going to make this creation new. A place where he and his people will spend all of eternity together. Where things will all be as he intended them to be. So I ask you, is your hope in this Christ today? Is this what you're looking for? Is this the destiny of your life? Or do you see some grand plan for this broken world? Are you attempting to make your own way to God? Or are you trying to be God in and of your own self? Are you trusting in your own efforts and plans? And that's a recipe for judgment and rejection. As we put our trust in Christ's finished work and rest in His perfect promises, we will know this glorious portrait that He portrays as He created man and woman to begin with. So let me ask you, does your worldview conflict with any part of God's creation account? As he lays it out, do you find yourself leaning into that or do you find yourself being taken aback? Because listen, everything in this world, everything that we've learned, everything we've been trained with is an antithesis to this creation account. Unless you've been in a faithful church that has continued to proclaim God's truth as God's truth and stand by it, then you find yourself leaning into what you learn in a schooling system, a training system, or in a culture that's inundated with this anti-God mentality. Do you find yourself feeling the tugs of that? as you read God's Word and study it? What are you willing to do if your current views are not in alignment with God's Word? Do you just discount them? you just blow them off? Do you just say, well, you know, the experts, the higher criticism people say, we don't have to really believe that stuff, that that doesn't matter. We can, we can take that off the table. As long as we believe in Christ, that He has come and died for our sin. Well, listen... If you don't believe Genesis through Malachi, what point is Jesus coming into the world anyway? You see, Genesis tells us exactly what God began to do and how that has ended up in the state it's in and why we need Christ. And so if you take that off the table, then you're left to figure out another reason why you believe in Christ? Are you more concerned with having other humans approve of your views or having God's approval? You see, that's the bottom line, isn't it? The only way we can be approved by God, the only way you can ever have God's approval is through the blood of Christ. You and I have failed just as Adam failed. Only through Christ do we have the approval of a holy father. Only through Christ. Leaning into Him, trusting Him, applying His atoning work to our lives gains God's approval. Not just for today, but for all of eternity.
for all of eternity. Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are. We thank you for the, the gospel. We live in a world that continues to show great evidence of the fall that took place there in the garden that we'll be talking about in the days to come. Lord, of seeing how the creation that you brought into existence has been marred, how we've been marred by sin. Father, we ask you to forgive us when we put too much stock in human speculations and ingenuity and find ourselves, Lord, not willing to lean in and trust your word. I pray that you move in our hearts this morning and that you challenge those places, Lord, where we have abandoned truth, your truth, in order to believe a lie concocted in this world. That you would show those things to us and that you would enable us, Lord, through your spirit to repent and to turn from those lies and to put our trust in you and you alone. Make it clear. Not let us be knocked off of our game, Lord, because of the popular theories of the day that change as generations change. But Lord, equip us to trust you, to take you at your word, and to believe it with all that we are. Lord, that one day when we stand before you, I'd much rather have you say to me, Jerry, you just believe too much rather than not enough. May that be true of all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.